0: All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day just to be alive and breathing and somewhat healthy. We thank you for the health we do have, Father. We know there's always someone worse off than us. And we also know that you know the testing that we can bear. And you promise not to give us more than we can handle as your word states. Father, most of all, we're incredibly grateful for your son and we come together once again to learn your word and to celebrate him and all that he did on our behalf voluntarily so that we could have resurrection to eternal life forever and ever with you. Father, help us never Take this grace for granted. Help us live in this grace every day. The gift that you've given us. Eternal life through faith in your Son. Father, please bless this message. Have your Spirit guide us and teach us. And help us understand the special message you have for us tonight in our souls. We ask these things in Christ's precious name. And it's by the power of your spirit we pray. Amen. Resurrection is the linchpin of the gospel. And this point came out on Sunday during our special resurrection service. And that's what we're going to be uh, reiterating tonight through several scriptures. So on Sunday, the spirit led us to examine the vital importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ even as part of the gospel itself. And to overlook the resurrection in any way, or to doubt the resurrection, is really to doubt salvation itself. If we think about it, wasn't the whole purpose of Christ's sacrifice to bring new life? To set man free from the bondage of sin so that he could live at peace with God forever? If it was anything less than that, then what was the point, in a way? If there's no resurrection, there's no eternal life. And we could argue eternal life is the very reason Christ died in our stead. So tonight, the Spirit wants to revisit parts of our main message from Sunday. And as we do, He has some branches for us to take off of that as a wonderful reminder of our great hope of resurrection in Jesus Christ. First, I'd like to share with you a passage that I read this morning in the book of Psalms as part of my regular Bible reading, and it just said so much to me and says so much in in these few verses. It also includes the hope of resurrection by faith in our Lord. So go to uh, Psalm 73, verse 21 to begin. Psalm 73, 21. And you might recognize a part of this from a previous study we did a few weeks ago. It says, When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel you will guide me. And afterward, receive me to glory. Notice that phrase. Afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion for how long? Forever. So obviously, resurrection and the hope of resurrection is greatly implied in the Scripture. And let this encourage you today. And that God knows our weakness as well, as verse uh, 26 says, I'm sorry, as we fail in flesh and heart. I mean, this is a verse we all can relate to, right? Just every day is not a great spiritual day because we get in the way somehow. But as we fail in flesh and heart, our God holds us up. Our Father is always there with us, and He is our strength. And it's all looking forward to uh, Him being our portion forever and ever. So of what value would all this be without the hope of resurrection to eternal life one day? go again to 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1, which was our main resurrection passage on Sunday. And we're going to revisit um, a lot of this chapter and see where the Spirit takes us with different, different emphases this evening. First Corinthians 15:1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you. Which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. On the board, we discussed this phrase, in vain, on Sunday. And to Paul, Christ's resurrection was fundamental to the faith. He was saying that if Christ wasn't resurrected, then our faith is worthless. Or in vain. As we saw on Sunday, this theme is carried throughout this entire chapter. In verse 3, it goes on to say, "...for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures." So here's our first detour we're going to take this evening. We must never forget the sacrifice of our Lord and His resurrection was predicted for the Jews throughout the Old Testament. The idea of resurrection, for example, should not have been foreign to the Jews. It was littered and scattered and mentioned all throughout the Old Testament. And that's why the resurrection should not have been doubted by the Jews. It should never have been a surprise to the Jews that this is what Jesus even claimed. Although it apparently was for some of the Gentiles in Corinth who possibly didn't know the Old Testament scriptures. On the board, in John 8, 56, Jesus told the Jews, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So even Abraham looked forward of what to respect or expect from the Savior, from the Messiah. Not just his suffering for our sins, but also the resurrection. When Jesus appeared to a couple of the disciples right after his resurrection, it was on the road to Emmaus. And even though he walked right up to them and spoke with them, they didn't know it was him at first but what did jesus teach them on this walk with them he taught them that all the things that happened to him were prophesied in the scriptures he even said they were foolish for not being aware of this that's how much it's mentioned throughout the old testament so turning your bibles to luke 24, verse 13, and let's see how Jesus, even though they didn't know it was him, let's see how Jesus relayed the Old Testament scriptures to the disciples who really should have known and should have expected the resurrection. Luke 24, 13. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached them and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? Obviously, Jesus was kind of playing dumb to see what they would say. And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus, the Nazarene who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. Now, you've got to remember the scene. Picture this. This was fresh in their lives. This was only three days after his crucifixion. And this is so fresh and raw in their lives that they couldn't believe this happened, even though they should have known It was to happen and supposed to happen. So in verse 21, But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. Notice how surprised they sound, right? They weren't expecting this and they still didn't believe it. But notice the Lord's response to them in verse 25. But he said to them, "O foolish men. And slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus didn't even point to himself yet and what he taught them personally. He said, how foolish and slow of, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets, the Old Testament prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? So there we see... Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15 was just supporting what Jesus said right here, explaining the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures to them about the crucifixion and the resurrection. So it's certainly possible that one of the scriptures Jesus reminded them of was when Abraham uh, was tested by God to sacrifice his only son Isaac in the Old Testament. There's no greater type in the Scriptures foreshadowing the way God would give up His own Son one day as the Savior of the world. And resurrection was also foreshadowed in this passage. So go to Genesis chapter 22, and as we read, we'll see several allusions to the Messiah and His sacrifice and even to Abraham's hope in resurrection. Genesis 22, verse 1. And for those of you who are new to the Word of God, remember that the book of Genesis was written about 1500 B.C. Genesis 22, 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, And he said, Here I am. He said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering. And arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, don't overlook that either. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the, wor- the wood of the burnt offering And laid it on his son Isaac. So here we see the father laying the wood for the sacrifice upon his son. And also the son carrying the wood for his own sacrifice. Hopefully, you're making the correlation. Even though this is written in 1500 BC, it sounds like Jesus carrying his own wooden cross to his sacrifice. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. So here we see Abraham's willingness of heart to follow through on this. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And God knew Abraham's heart. God knew that in Abraham's heart, Abraham had already given him up for God. And so what did God do? In a way, he gave him his son back from the dead. Look at verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. There's a loaded statement, by the way. Again, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And by the way, kind of as a side note, can't we now confidently make the statement on the board because of this in Genesis 22, 12? Can't we now say, Dear God, now I know that you love me because you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me? If God could conclude this from Abraham's actions, we can certainly conclude this from God's actions. So in verse 12, he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket, By his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Notice the ram was caught by his horns in a thicket, which means this ram or this lamb was crowned with thorns on his head, if you can picture it. Another prophecy of what the Messiah would endure one day. And in verse 14, Abraham called the place, the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. So again, the statement on the on the board, Dear God, now I know that you love me, because you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham trusted God so much. Abraham also knew God's promises, and he knew God would find a way to give him the generations promised to come from Isaac. Even if Abraham was asked to go forward and sacrifice him, Abraham knew that God would find a way to give him the generations promised to come from Isaac maybe even by something called resurrection. And this is why it's odd when the Jews don't believe in the resurrection, because even the father of their faith did. And this was confirmed to be Abraham's hope in the book of Hebrews. Turn to the book of Hebrews 11, verse 17. So Abraham proved his love for God just like God proved his love for us in no greater way than being willing to give up his son. But Abraham was willing to do it because he trusted God and that, that he knew God could resurrect Isaac. And obviously that was a foreshadowing of Christ. Hebrews 11:17. 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. So there we see Isaac was a type of our Lord resurrected. To not believe in the resurrection of Christ defeats the whole purpose of a sacrifice being made. As our title to this lesson states and as came out on Sunday, resurrection is the linchpin to the gospel even. If there were no life after death, then what value would such a sacrifice have? But because life does not end after this life, there is a judgment with God to come, and God did something drastic and lovely to save us. It was all for the resurrection to eternal life that the sacrifice was made. So go again to 1 Corinthians fifteen three. First Corinthians fifteen three. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. On the road to Emmaus, maybe Jesus also reminded the two disciples of what David said in the Psalms, according to the Scriptures. On the board in Psalm 16, verse 10, David wrote, For you, God, will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. As Jesus said later on, uh, when he was teaching the people, he's like, who do you think David was talking about? Because David's body underwent decay, right? His, His bones are still in the tomb. So obviously, here's another prophecy about the Messiah not undergoing decay. Or maybe also Jesus brought up to the disciples the fact that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days before being given new life, so to speak. On the board in Jonah 1:17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Jesus, as we know, was raised on the third day, and it was according to the scriptures. Look at First Corinthians 15:5. and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter. And then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So Paul goes on to say, If there is even a Christ, and even all these eyewitnesses to his resurrection, how do some of you deny it? How do some of you doubt the resurrection? Look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? So, as came out on Sunday, there were clearly lies being perpetuated in the church of Corinth making some people doubt the resurrection. And again, that ruins the whole thing, right? I mean, if there's no resurrection, what was all this for? Paul is reminding them that the resurrection is the very linchpin of the gospel. So if you want, you can again hold your place here in 1 Corinthians 15 and go to Romans 4, verse 25, which we saw on Sunday. Romans 4.25. So Paul's spending time on this. I mean, he spent this long chapter on this, all on resurrection, you know, maybe to emphasize how crucial this is even to our salvation. Romans 4.25. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Jesus was raised from the dead because of our justification. As the Spirit reminded us on Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was proof that God had accepted His sacrifice. That's why this was so vitally important. It was the proof that God okayed Jesus' work on the cross. If Jesus never came back to life, the apostles would have been hopeless. How do we know he was the one? How do we know that his sacrifice was enough? How do we know God accepted his sacrifice? But when Jesus came out of the tomb and spoke to them, you know, and said, I'm back, you know, um, peace be with you, he said. Well, there was the proof. There was the evidence. So this was so, so vitally important. And this was the proof that God would justify the ungodly. Justify the sinners who turned to Christ in humility. Look at Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Now think about this. Even the possibility of facing the wrath of God implies there's a resurrection after this life. There's some type of a judgment coming beyond this life. So with Christ we have the hope, the hope of an eternal life being rescued from the wrath of God. And there we also see without Jesus' resurrection there would be no justification of life to us. And what life is this talking about? has to be eternal life, doesn't it? Think of the thief on the cross. If there was no eternal life, the thief on the cross got justified and enjoyed it for a couple of minutes, a couple of hours maybe. Was that what it was all for? I hope not, because again, that's hopeless, right? Christ's sacrifice was good and perfect in God's eyes. And now, whoever trusts in Christ will share in his resurrection life. And Jesus proved that when he came out of the tomb. So Paul goes on to elaborate how hopeless life would be if there were no resurrection. Go back to 1 Corinthians 15, 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead aren't raised. You see Paul's argument here. He's being sarcastic. But you might as well call us false witnesses now. As we already testified to the resurrection, and now you're saying there is none. So you're calling us liars, and we even offended God. Verse 16, "For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins." In other words, there's no proof of payment for your sins. If He is not raised, you're still in your sins. How do you know it was worthy? It was effective. So man is still trapped in his sins if Jesus' sacrifice was not proven to be acceptable to God. It was like authorized by the resurrection. The resurrection was like God's stamp of approval and proof to us that we're all good here. This was truly finished, as Jesus said, before he bowed his head. So man has no hope on his own without Christ and his resurrection from the grave. As Jesus said in John 8:24 on the board, "Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless that you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins." Paul saying the same thing, unless you unless you believe that he's the one that rose from the dead, you're going to die in your sins. Because without resurrection from the dead, you're still in that place. You're still trapped in that place. Paul's argument is that we're wasting our time if there's no resurrection. Because that means there's no hope and nothing else to live for except this short life. That would be kind of a waste of an incredible sacrifice. Paul's argument again is that we're wasting our time if there's no resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15:16 again. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. On the board regarding 1 Corinthians 15:17, if this errant logic were true, we're in no better condition positionally than the unbelieving Jews that crucified Jesus. We're all stuck in the same boat, which is no hope, no hope of getting out of sin or death. Look at verse 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. On the board, in this life only. Assuming there is no resurrection, we'd have nothing to look forward to. Even Jesus would still be in the grave, not seated at the right hand of our Father in heaven. It's actually quite foolish to consider all Christ did on the cross was for nothing of eternal value. That's what people are saying if they're going to say there's no resurrection. That what he went through on the cross was for no eternal value it makes zero sense. So then Paul boldly declares against these false presuppositions. Look at verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, talking about Adam. By a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Paul makes this argument beautifully in Romans chapter 6. Go to Romans chapter 6 again. And once again, hold your thumb if you'd like. But Paul, you know, makes this rational argument in so many chapters, and it includes the resurrection so many times. Romans 6, 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And was, What was always the purpose of the whole crucifixion and burial and death. What was the purpose? So that just like Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. In other words, the whole purpose of the death was to live again and a new life. Knowing that Christ, in verse nine, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. In other words, that was the whole point, that we can be made alive again and with a new life, without sin and death in the way believe in the resurrection, kind of the whole point. So go back to 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-two. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ that is coming. Then comes the end when He hands over the kingdom to Thee, God, and Father, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Therefore, look at verse 34. Verse 34. Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool. That which you sow... Now, think here about planting a seed in the ground, because that's what sowing is, right? Okay, we're not sowing any clothing together here. We're sowing a seed in the ground, right? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, do you? Do you plant in the ground the body that's to be in the future, that's coming out later? No, you plant the old thing, the old seed in the ground. That which you sow You do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain is what you sow, perhaps of wheat or something else. In other words, a simple little seed. You don't plant what's going to be new or what is to come. You plant the old. But God gives it a body just as he wished and to each of the seeds a body of its own. But when? after it's sown in the ground, after it's buried. What a great picture of resurrection we see in planting and farming. We always plant and bury one thing, and we wait for the miracle of the new life to come out of the ground, right? I mean, we should really, we're so familiar with planting. We're so familiar seeing flowers come up out of the ground from a seed. Or even fruit and vegetables come from a seed months later. But my friends, is there any greater miracle that we could witness with our eyes in this life? You're trying to tell me a seed goes into the ground and I bury it under the ground, so there's no sun hitting it, and the seed dies. The seed dies. The seed is dead in the ground before God brings new life forth from it. And then it's new life. It's not the same life. The seed doesn't just come back out of the ground and say, hey, I'm back and, you know, I feel better, whatever. The seed is new. The seed literally transforms, it is totally a miracle. So, do you see the analogy in our resurrection? He's like, when you plant a seed, you know, you have to bury it first and then new life comes from it. So look at verse, you know, again, 38. But God gives it a body. And he's talking about us now. He's talking about resurrection. God gives it a body just as he wished. And to each of the seeds, a body of its own. So we're each a seed, if you will. A new body is in store after death. A miraculous new form chosen by God for the fruit to come forth. To come forth as a certain fruit. The seed going into the ground actually dies first. Remember that. And then new life comes forth from it. Which means it has to be a miracle because it died first. And this is resurrection. What a picture of the supernatural resurrection from the dead which is only possible by God's hand. Jesus used this analogy as he was preparing himself to face the cross and embrace the Father's plan to bring new life. See, Jesus had the hope in him too. He's facing the Garden of Gethsemane. He's facing what he's going to have to go through, a death and burial, a seed dying and being planted in the ground. He's facing that because he knows by faith that new life is part of God the Father's plan. Not only for him, but for all of us that he could save who would turn to him. So on the board, he said this in John 12, 23. And Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Notice, notice, the Son of Man... (laughs) He didn't say the hour has come for the Son of Man to be, you know, beaten and and to die. He went right to the glorification, which means what? Resurrection, which means victory in the end. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies it bears much fruit. And that was Jesus' hope as our great example. So back to 1 Corinthians 15, 36. You fool, that which you sow, again, think of planting a seed in the ground, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. So the new life and resurrection is given by God alone in the new form that God will ordain for it, including for each one of us. Verse 39, All flesh is not the same flesh, But there is one flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of birds, and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. In other words, it's up to God what kind of body you get, and they're all going to be different a little bit. They're all going to have different glory. They're all going to have a slightly different form. Either way, there is a resurrection from the dead. And be content and be excited to see the body that God gives you, which will be perfect, as it says in verse 42. It is sown a perishable body. In other words, it is buried in the ground a perishable body. Thank God. It is raised an imperishable body. The fruit that comes forth will be imperishable. Not only is it a miracle that God created life from death, but it will now be an imperishable body that has defeated death. So our perishable body goes into the ground one day when we die, just like a seed is sown and buried and God raises us again into an imperishable body forever and ever with Jesus. That was the whole point. 1 Corinthians fifteen forty It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Think of your own body one day. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, the seed, if you will, that has to die, we will also bear the image of the heavenly, the fruit that is new life. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood, that's the seed that has to die, right? And be planted in the ground. I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood, the perishable, if you will, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. There has to be a new body if you're going to inherit the imperishable. This is why there must be a resurrection. And Jesus opened those gates for all of us. In verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery we will not all sleep, we will not all die, in other words, but we will all be changed one day. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed, whoever is on earth at the time of the rapture. But either way, verse 53, for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Again, the whole point for Jesus' sacrifice was resurrection. That was the whole purpose of him even coming to be the sacrifice that through him and his perfect holy sacrifice, death would be defeated for all time, which means eternal life for those that would believe in him. If death is defeated for all time, what's left? If you can't die anymore, what's left? It has to be life, which can't be interrupted, because death has been defeated. We have a hope that can't be taken away, and we've been given the proof to guarantee that hope because of Jesus' resurrection. As we saw on Sunday, Peter called it a living hope. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter 1, 1.3 as we begin to close. Peter called it a living hope. It's what gives us hope and courage each day we rise up out of bed. First Peter 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. There's that word again. Imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though for now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed with various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even gold is perishable, it dies, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the proof of your faith, which will be imperishable. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Eternal life, in other words. Resurrection. Living forever without any more fear of death. If death has been defeated by Christ, that implies life goes on forever. Thus, there has to be the resurrection. So go again to 1 Corinthians 15:55 as we close. I believe some of you haven't held your thumb there by now. Sheesh. It's like the fifth time we're going back. Have all the pages turned? It's so funny. <clears throat> Verse 55. O death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, in verse 58, therefore, my beloved brethren, in other words, this is our motivation when we wake up in the morning. Because of the resurrection, we're motivated. Because we know Jesus rose from the grave and he's not subject to death any longer, we know that we're not because we're in union with him. So we're motivated. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable. Where do you get the energy, where do you get the power to be steadfast, to be immovable? Faith in the resurrection. Believing in his victory over death. So therefore, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. We know it's not. We know it's not fruitless, We know there's a resurrection. We know that the perishable takes on the imperishable. And we're one of those seeds if we've trusted in Christ. So Paul puts to rest the doubters and the haters of resurrection. And his passion is reserved here for us in the scriptures as the word of God inspired to remind us of why we live and why we have no fear to die. Because when we die, we die in the Lord's arms with the Lord's power and eternal life granted to us by grace. We've already read all about it, the perishable inheriting the imperishable. So that's why we can rightly say death is just a transition for us. It literally is going from one place to another if you want to say going even from one room to another, it literally for us is just walking through a doorway and being changed in the process by the supernatural power of God, which is easy for him. Death is just a transition for us from one place to the next to his abode in heaven because Christ defeated sin and death once for all. And his resurrection proved that to the whole world, especially to us who believe. On the board in First Timothy 4.10, For it is for this we labor and strive. Doesn't that sound like First Corinthians 15.58? Therefore, brethren, you know, be steadfast. It is for this we labor and strive. Because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. So take what the Spirit's been saying about resurrection as a motivation, as the great hope. And because we know this is true, we know our toil is not in vain, we know we're not wasting our time, we know our sins are removed, and we have the hope of uh, supernaturally rising from the dead because Christ already did it. Thank God. Amen? Amen. All right, let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing word, your amazing grace. We thank you so much for making your word come alive to us by your Holy Spirit. Help us to believe, Father. Give us more faith. And help us to know and be steadfast and immovable for your sake and for your glory because we know our toil is not in vain because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We ask, Father, that you help us take this wisdom out to the lost and dying world that needs it so desperately to give them hope, to give them the hope and the truth of new life in you. We ask these things in Christ's precious name by the power of your Spirit. Amen.